I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To help us get to the truth of the matter today about the state of live music in America and what's going on in America's greatest small venues and medium-sized venues, we have with us the folks who brought us Bring Music Home. Amber Mundinger and Tamara Dyke who have this fantastic new book out, which I ordered and I coincidentally got in the mail yesterday. I'm so excited about it. It's a coffee table book called Bring Music Home, and it goes through major American cities from Atlanta to New Orleans to Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., to Los Angeles to Nashville, New York City, of course, Detroit, everything in between, and talks about all the all the clubs and how they fared during the pandemic and what needs to happen to get them back to where they were before. So Tamara, Amber, it is so great to have you here with us on Truth of the Matter. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having us. We're so excited to chat with you. And I'm so glad you got your book. Oh, I, I can't put it down. I mean, it weighs nine pounds and it is a beautiful coffee table book, but I can't put it down because I just want to go through every page and see what's going on in every one of these clubs. What inspired you to start this project and and the whole book and the the project is more than just the book. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. It's a multimedia project and so it encompasses the book, an upcoming docu-series and a podcast, but but also I think, you know, as we've gone past the year, the past year plus Tamara and I would also call it a movement. And, you know, it's really become a brand in and of itself that can really help to support storytelling and different initiatives in the music economy itself. But, you know, to your question of how did we get started, it was really a discussion amongst three friends, you know, in early March of 2020. So myself, Tamara, and our friend Kevin Condon, who did all the art direction for the book and as a music photographer, but we were in shutdown mode in New York City. You know, Tamara was kind of giving us updates and keeping us posted on what was going on with South by Southwest. And so really kind of across the country, I think for the three of us, we just saw very quickly that things were, you know, going to be like this. I don't think we could have predicted this long, but at least for several months. And we just said out loud, you know, it was like, we should document this and we should showcase these people behind these places and the stories of these places themselves. But yeah, that's, that's kind of my tale of the, of the start. Tamara may have some more to add there. I think we were also at a loss, right? Like all of, for the most part, our business had stopped. The world was on pause. And I think at that point in time, we also felt like this was a rare gift that we'd been given to have a window into the people behind the curtain who never get the spotlight to go out there and connect with them and talk to them and and maybe even offer them, you know, some semblance of support and connection at a time when everyone was, 
you know, very distraught. And so we moved at it very rapidly and only focusing on five cities to begin with, because we, you know, didn't want to bite off more than we could chew, frankly. But I think it was also because it was manageable and we felt like we could get this done really quickly before this pandemic goes away, because that was the sense at the time was that this thing might be over in a flash. So we better hurry up and get, you know, these stories captured while we have the opportunity. Now, you're both music industry veterans. Tamara, you founded Aces High, a music and entertainment production company. Amber, you're the chief operating officer and head of strategic partnerships for Artist Den Entertainment, which includes live from the Artist Den, the critically acclaimed television series. Amber, you also had been at Rolling Stone before. Tell us why these music clubs, these venues are so important to the fabric of American life. A venue is a cultural institution in and of itself. I don't think as Americans, we've really looked at venues, independent venues in that way, holistically. But, you know, for every single one of these venues, a dollar spent at a venue, $12 is spent in the surrounding economy. And I know in Colorado, it's $26 for every dollar. So when you think about economic impact, you know, between jobs, not just for a live music venue, but for restaurants, shops, the entire surrounding area of a community, these locations help to not only nurture things economically, but they foster artists from the very beginning of their careers. They help create genres of music. Songs are born out of these places. So there's really so much, you know, layered in that one spot, you know, that that can have a ripple effect across, you know, not only a neighborhood in a city, but but culturally across the, the U.S. and beyond. Um, so, you know, I think that's how how I think about it. Yeah. And I would just add that, you know, what they what music venues are to communities are effectively centers for storytelling. And, you know, whether you're in the audience swapping stories about how you saw, you know, Karangbin for the first time when they played at a small and seedy club in New York City's Lower East Side, or you're talking about, you know, your favorite artists or whatever, or you're listening to musicians from the stage sharing their stories with you through song. And, and so I think that that exchange of energy and connection is also something that can't be overlooked with regard to why these music venues are so integral and important to our lives and to our culture and the cities that we live in. So those are such great points. Along those lines, proceeds from the book are going to support the National Independent Venues Association. Why did you pick that venue for you know, the proceeds to go to. And and what do you think is going to happen in Congress? Because that that organization is trying to lobby Congress to promote financial relief for independent venues. So can you tell us why these efforts are, are so important? Yeah, I mean, it's the first time collectively that independent music venues have come together to help each other and themselves as as institutions. So I think that in of itself is a feat, given that, you know, at the end of the day, these locations are competitors, but, you know, they're stronger together. And I think, you know, when we started this project, Neva hadn't even formed yet, which is kind of, you know, mind blowing. So we were really trying to figure out, okay, across all of these cities, you know, what are the organizations that we can partner with to give back in those particular cities? And then, you know, it was really fortunate that Neva was formed for 
many reasons. But, you know, ultimately, Tamara is connected with Stephen Sternshine, who's one of the, the founders of Neva, and was, you know, sharing with him what we were doing with this project. And it was just a really natural fit for us to partner with them. And what it allowed us to do was have one focus and one funnel for charitable giving that we could align ourselves with so that also we weren't dictating where the funds were going and we were able to kind of blanket, you know, through Neva help, you know, give those funds to be dispersed across venues and across their employees. So when we first partnered with them, our focus was the emergency relief fund. We did a whole poster campaign where we had 30 original pieces of art created by poster artists. All of that money went directly to Neva's fund to immediately help. And then long-term, to your point, 30% of every single book's proceeds go directly to Neva. And we're really proud of that because, you know, I think they've only just begun. Obviously, people have seen, I'm sure, in the news that there's been fits and starts with the process of people even applying for venues to get this money and to be able to get that grant support. But, you know, I think you're going to see them continue to, you know, come out in a bigger and, you know, an even better way to support venues across the country and hopefully help shift the mindset in Congress and with consumers on how we should be protecting these locations and supporting them. Like if we were in Germany, we are, you know, France, we wouldn't be having this particular conversation. Like some of those things are already set up to help support those institutions. So I think this is just the foundation of it and the pandemic you know, it was not something any of us wanted to have. Um, but, you know, it in many ways helped create a more cohesive dynamic and patchwork of all of these venues across the country. Yeah, I would just add to that. It's about a collective voice, right? For the first time, all of these venues who had theoretically been competitors with one another came together to have a louder voice through their unison, through their uniting. And so they were, to your point, able to rally around Congress and raise awareness for the plight of what music venues all over the country were dealing with. And to the point that you you made regarding, you know, kind of what now, that is the challenge, right? Because though Congress has approved SBA loans and some of these other programs that are meant to be a fail-safe to support the music venues that have been struggling, very few venues have been able to access that funding or that money yet. And they are literally white knuckling it right now, holding on for dear life and trying to make it. And so I think that the biggest challenge that is facing the industry collectively and and Nevis certainly is continuing to give people the information and access that they need to be able to get their hands on these funds as well as really pushing Congress to, you know, put put the money where their mouth is and do the, the work instead of making things more complicated, which is effectively what has happened. So, you know, we're very grateful that Neva exists and they've been a fantastic partner to work with on this project, ultimately. My organization, CSIS, is a bipartisan organization. And so anytime you see members of Congress cooperating, which you know, unfortunately is increasingly rare these days, you know, we're really excited. And, you know, this is the the mission that we have is to foster bipartisanship across the major global challenges that we study. So one of the things that really struck me about this is this is a bipartisan initiative in Congress. You do have bipartisan support. Did that surprise you all? Not at all. I think music is is universal, right? Like, you know, 
I think it may be for the first time really kind of shined a light on it. Like, you know, like Chuck Schumer can get down with some Metallica possibly, <laughs> right? Like you just never know, right? Do you know how much I would pay to see Charles Ellis Schumer getting down to Metallica? I mean, I, I mean, think a lot of people would be pretty amazing. Yeah. I think he might, yeah, he, he might break the internet. So, but you know, it's, it's an important distinction. We are all emotive feeling creatures. Music is a language and it's a connector. And particularly during the time that we've been through, it has been a savior for so many. And so when we look at the political divides that have created so much trauma and anguish and so forth for all of us, you know, isn't it interesting that music is something that can really be a salve for that and create and unify yeah. people. I mean, and I guess I would only just add to that, that, you know, I don't think to Tamara's point, it was surprising that it was bipartisan. I think it was really amazing that it was one of the things that everybody could finally agree upon, you know, and hopefully it was a catalyst for more things that we can all kind of come across the table and mutually agree to because, you know, this music got us through this past year plus, and it was one of the industries that, you know, everybody suffered, but it's been one of the industries that has, you know, been hugely impacted economically. And you've got artists who are, you know, who are creative, sensitive individuals who are still were giving of their craft when they were barely, you know, they were either not making any money or barely making any money and still performing to no applause virtually because they want to share that with people and they want to help people get through, which I think is a really special thing. Well, it gave me a lot of hope and inspiration to see senators like Amy Klobuchar of, you know, Minnesota partnering to co-sponsor with Senator John Cornyn of, of Texas, two, two members who are, you know, pretty much diametrically opposed on many, many issues, but both certainly have a lot of venues in their states. And they understood that this is really important. And for them to come together gives me a lot of hope that if you can come together on something like that, that's to the benefit of, you know, Americans economically, to the benefit of communities, as you guys said, you know, hub of storytelling, Tamara, which I think is such a important way to put it. it. It gives me a lot of hope. It's a great story. And I think a story that's not been covered enough. Yeah. You know where I think I started to see politics and music kind of exposed in a really unique and fun way was when we started to learn about what was on Obama's playlists yeah. and that he had a guy on his team who helped put his Spotify playlist together for him. And you're like, oh man, like he gets down with some jams. He's exploring new music. He loves some throwbacks. And oh, by the way, he's just a guy like the rest of us who's, who was into music. And, you know, maybe just maybe, you know, some of the, the iciness that we feel about, you know, some of these folks in Congress and people that we, you know, just can't find common ground between perhaps, perhaps music could be, you know, one of those things that helps to chip away at some of the, what seems to be often a, a very major divide between us. I think that certainly we've all missed being able to go to shows, to see bands and musicians perform, to dance, to, because what that gives us all, right, is hope. It gives us the ability to escape whatever 
we may be going through or our daily grind or whatever. We haven't had those opportunities during this time. Yes, there's been live streams and amen to that, but it certainly isn't the same as going to a real show in a real place with real people. Right. Cause you're, you're at the end of the day, you're at home watching the show on your computer and maybe you have a couple friends over or family, you know, but it's not that communal experience. It conveys the music pretty well, but it doesn't convey the spirit of the whole, you know, endeavor. Yeah, definitely. And that's what leaps off of the pages of your book too. back to your book is, you know, when you go through this book and you go city by city and you read the stories and you see these amazing, you know, photos of these venues, it makes, you know, I, I know a lot of people who have, you know, taken their kids on tours of baseball stadiums throughout the country. You know, I want to take my kids through a tour of, of these venues when they're old enough to get in. Yes, yeah. exactly. And that's how yeah. we think about it. I mean, we we want people to now use this as a road trip map, you know, like mm -hmm. learn about all of these places, like hear directly from the people, you know, in this book and then go visit them, you know, and really learn, you know, learn a bit before you go to a show. But I think it is, it's like this whole amazing roadmap of all of the, you know, not all, but, you know, a huge amount of some of the most amazing places across the country that you can experience. Yeah, I don't think everybody knows that on a Thursday night, you know, or a Wednesday night in New Orleans or in Phoenix or certainly Los Angeles, you can see, you know, in non-pandemic times, you can see one of the greatest shows and have one of the greatest experiences that you'll ever have from an unknown band. You know, it doesn't have to be a big name. Well, and you raised a really important point. You know, I live in Austin full time, a city known for its music culture, right? The live music capital of the world. And what you're speaking about as well is the ability and opportunity for artists who are beginning, starting and trying it out to have a stage to stand on, to have an audience to perform to. And so as we begin this reopening process, which we're now slowly tiptoeing back into what we both hope, I believe, and Amber, excuse me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I just think that what we recognize is that while venues need to obviously make up for a massive loss from the previous year, of course, and they need to book surefire bets and they need to bring in the crowds and do the things that will help them to regain some semblance of economic sanctity. They also, I hope, will continue to give opportunities to the young up-and-comers who are trying it out for the first time. Because without you know those opportunities, without being able to showcase new musicians, new genres, and new styles, and, and new storytelling, we stand to lose some really important moments in culture. And so... I hope that as we start to reemerge, that those opportunities will still exist as well. I would completely agree with that. And I feel like there's artists that, you know, every artist needs those locations to hone their craft, to understand their stage presence, to really develop their show. And so, you know, I hope that they all get that opportunity because I feel like we, we, you know, lost some creatives over the past year in terms of them just shifting focus that, you know, could have given us some amazing music. So hopefully, you know, as things open back up, they'll, they'll get the chance to come back onto a local stage. Can I ask you both what some of the, your favorite venues are? I know this is kind of like picking your favorite 
child, you know, or your favorite nephew or your favorite niece. But like what what were some of the favorite places or most interesting places that you all came across and what were some of the most surprising? I mean, yeah, for me, you know, I I produced all of the New York's, you know, locations and I would say nationally, you know, places like Exit in in Nashville or, you know, Stubbs in Austin, you know, the Troubadour in LA are all like places that I just love so much. And then, you know, in New York, places that were really surprising to me, you know, were interviewing the Greenwood Cemetery director because the catacombs of Greenwood Cemetery are an amazing place where there's a classical music series where a hundred people get to see some of the most iconic, you know, performers in this space and to talk to somebody like that who, you know, put it in a really beautiful way. He was like, you know, right now we're seeing people come here because they just want some quiet. They want a moment away from the city to really just have some contemplative time. And, you know, and he was like, this is a bit morbid, but, you know, we're in a pandemic. You know, death isn't just the ultimate death. There's tiny deaths every day. And we're experiencing that emotionally right now. And so music will come back here. We will have this this series and more. But right now we're just opening our gates for people to just be here and be and kind of, you know, really kind of process everything. And I thought that was really, really special. And then, you know, places like Babies All Right in Brooklyn, who they normally support 40 plus full-time employees, you know, that's crazy. This small little venue, people don't understand the ripple effect of the families, you know, and economics from those individuals. So those are probably some of my favorites. And I know that Tamara's going to kind of lead the charge for the rest of our chat because I hate to have to do this, but I have to go get my vaccine. (laughs) Go, go. No, please do. This is even more exciting than talking about what you're, what, you know, about the Bring Music Home. Please do. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. So she speaks for for both of us. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch shortly. I'll see you guys soon. Okay, thanks, Amber. So Tamara, what, what are some of your favorite places? Well, it's a it's a big question when you're dealing with over 200 of them that have been featured in the book, right? Yeah. And so many cities we didn't get to, you know, and, and, at a certain point, we just had to stop, right? You, you have to be able to put this thing to the publisher or to the manufacturer and get it done, right? So, but I think for me, I was a DJ for more than a decade of my life. And one of my favorite things about DJing was playing small rooms. The smaller, the better, the more intimate, the more engaging and interesting. And and so for me, a lot of the smaller room venues are some of my favorite. And so one of my personal favorites in the book featured would be Pappy and Harriet's, which is out in Pioneer Town near Joshua Tree. I've been to quite a few shows there and the camaraderie of the of the staff and the guests, but also just this juxtaposition of like local like motocross dudes meets like local desert folks meets, you know, city slickers from LA that have come down for a cheeky weekend. You know, there's cowboys i mean bikers there's such an interesting like motley crew of characters and everyone is there because they love the music and you've got this small room that holds about 200 people and everyone from paul mccartney to stevie nicks is played there right so one of my absolute favorites plus it like lights up the desert like a beacon in the night when you drive out there into the middle of nowhere it's just a special special place for me I just love that. Can, can I just talk about that with you for a second? Because I was just out there in Joshua Tree and 
you know, didn't get a chance to go see music, but drove by Pappy and Harriet's. And, you know, my, my biggest dream is to go see a show there and also to go to Rancho de la Luna to watch somebody record and, or, or maybe even just meet Dave catching, you know, because those, there's something about that soul out there and the way you just put it, I, I, you know, I'm going to really, uh, value what you just said, because that, that's, that really, uh, that made my day. Yeah, it's, it's special for sure. And, you know, very, very honored that we were able to capture that one for the book. And I think, you know, just speaking of small rooms and like these spaces hold energy, right. Even when the lights come up and I think that one that stood out that surprised me that I absolutely want to go visit is a place called ground zero, in Clarksdale, Mississippi, it is apparently the birth of blues, right? And I never heard of it until we started working on this project. And the staff and the musicians that have come out of there, many staff doubled as musicians, right? There's, It's just a really interesting, intimate, wonderful story and, and an amazing place to see music by all accounts. And, you know, another thing now that I live in Texas, right, like I've really fallen in love with honky tonks and this idea of, you know, music making you dance isn't new. But I think that over the years, we've lost a lot of that, right? Like people just don't dance necessarily. Granted, it depends on the music, but for the most part, like you kind of stand around and scratch your chin and, you know, tap your foot a little bit. And when you're in Austin and many other cities in Texas and around the country, but specifically Austin, we have a lot of honky tonks, one of which that we featured in the book called The White Horse, which is owned by a fantastic guy called Dennis O'Donnell. He owns a few venues in the city, treats his staff amazingly. It shows his team are just fantastic. And the, you know, sort of familial vibe that we got when we walked through that door was catching. And when you treat people that way, when your staff behaves that way, it is a sensation that is felt by everyone who walks through the door at your venue. And it's hard to explain, but it's sensed and it's felt. And so when you're there, you know that they give a shit and that, you know, your presence is welcome and they want you there. And it makes that experience that much more wonderful for everyone on the dance floor and for everyone on the stage. Now, you must have, after going to a lot of these places and and writing about it and producing this book, you must have like the greatest concert venue t-shirt collection of all time now? (laughs) Well, I produced all of the photos for the Austin section of the book. We, working with this team of amazing photographers all over the country, had different photographers and creatives that went into each of their unique cities because of COVID, because of the challenges we were up against, because people weren't traveling, right? So, but for me, to answer your question, (laughs) hell yeah, I've got a great collection of (laughs) t-shirts. I tried to interest my my middle son. I have three sons, and I tried to interest my middle son in my thirty year old Tipitina's t shirts, and because he's going to Tulane nice. next year, and uh, he looked at him. He said, "Dad, those are kind of worn out. Maybe I should get my own." <laughs> so I think there's some new shirts in the in the in the cards. And one of the things that I've been doing over the past year is you know, going to the websites of my favorite venues like Tipitina's and buying merchandise like new t-shirts and things like that, just to keep them, you know, to give them some business, just to try to help where I can. Um, Are you guys encouraging people to do that sort of stuff too? Venues everywhere created new and amazing merchandise during this time. And it was super important and impactful because 
it allowed them to continue to bring some semblance of money through the door. So we saw everything from, you know, venues selling sort of golden tickets that could be used for an event of your choice in the future for, for fans of, of different venues around the country, you know, to be able to attend a show down the road when things reopen all the way through to like venues like Mohawk partnering with Vans to create a Mohawk specific van shoe, you know, so many different things. So a lot of people, a lot of patrons out there like yourself were buying merchandise and helping where they could. I wanted to ask about the poster collection because you all are selling these amazing posters that were created for this project on the Bring Music Home website. So can you tell us a little bit about that? The Bring Music Home poster project that we started kicked off almost probably March, April. And we just started identifying different artists in, in cities around the country that we were fans of to design an original poster that represented what they felt to be a visual representation of the music community within the city that they lived. And so everyone, that's a very big brief, right? And so everyone had a very different distinction and idea about what that looked like for them. And, and we wanted those images to be very unique and, and different from one another. And, and they delivered in full force. And so what we did was sold those in a very limited quantity. They were screen printed, which is a very painstaking and laborious process of multiple screens, you know, and ink happening to create these really beautiful posters with our partner, Fine Southern Gentleman in Austin. And so we have a handful of posters left today from a, a few different cities. So certainly, you know, if, if you're interested in one of those, you can visit bringmusichome.com and those posters still directly benefit the National Independence association. Final question, Tamara, what gives you the most optimism about the music industry and these venues as the country, you know, is, is trying to come out of the pandemic? What gives me the most optimism about where we are now and what is to come for the music industry is that the music industry is built on the backs of extremely passionate, resilient people who do not see this as a a simple job, but as a life calling. And when something calls you so directly, so loudly in life, you can fight it. You can try to navigate around it, but it'll keep calling you back. And also it is a family of folks around the world. If you work in music in any way, shape or form, somehow intrinsically you're connected through a bond. So I'm optimistic as we start to reopen, as people start to become more comfortable with being around others, as the vaccine of course starts to find its way to more and more people, that we will be back out there ready to watch musicians stand on the stage and deliver their stories to us and share our own stories with each other in the crowd. That's fantastic. Tamara Dyke, thank you so much. And thanks to Amber, who ran off to get her COVID shot, which we're really excited about. Wish you all the best. Thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter about this incredible project that you're doing and what's going on with music venues around the country, you know, during the pandemic and hopefully what will be happening post-pandemic. Thank you so much, Andrew. We really appreciate it. And yeah, you know, if, if you like music and you have a coffee table, this is your book. Couldn't agree more. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. 
You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 